Well, please open with me in God's Word to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, we have been looking together at Abraham, the life of Abraham here through the book of Genesis. While you're turning there, I wonder how many of you enjoy studying history. Now, aside from few of us history nerds, some of you are probably rolling your eyes or wondering, do I really need to endure a history lesson this morning? But history can be and often is very important, especially the lessons we can learn from history. And in ancient history, this morning there will be some helpful truths that will bring us fuller, a fuller understanding of what we find here in this chapter of Scripture. Uh, so let's briefly consider this morning what was called the uh, Suzerain Vassal Treaties that took place between kings and kingdoms centuries ago. But imagine yourself in a city there in the land of Canaan. And there you are in a city, and you have a king that rules and reigns over you, but you know in the distance there's another kingdom with another king. And further away in a different direction, there's yet another kingdom with another king. So spread throughout the land, you have all these kingdoms. Some are stronger than others. Maybe their location is better. Maybe there are more people present, maybe they have uh, more wealth and riches and military and training. But what you see over time are some kingdoms that are stronger and some kingdoms that are weaker. And often kingdoms would then seek to take advantage of weaker kingdoms and go to war in order to gain what other kingdoms have. Well, what you see developing then between these kingdoms are alliances and you would often see then stronger kingdoms allying with weaker kingdoms where the stronger kingdoms king would be the suzerain and he would agree to protect the subject king or the vassal in exchange for the vassal's loyalty and service so these alliances would be mutually helpful to your city, which may be weaker and provide protection and security. But it would also provide then service for those greater kingdoms and their desires and ambitions as well. So these kingdoms would enter into an alliance and agreement, this suzerain vassal treaty, and they would write it down. And in these suzerain vassal treaties or contracts, there could be up to seven features that are found in many of them. So just to briefly go through what a treaty may look like. Let's say a treaty is entered into in your city in the ancient world. Well, as it would be read to you, first you would hear the preamble. And in the preamble, you would hear who is included in this treaty. But then it would move to a historical prologue to then show the history of the relationship between the suzerain and the vassal. Then you would hear of the conditions of the covenant, where you would learn what the suzerain commits to do for the vassal and what the vassal commits to doing for the suzerain. Then you would hear of the blessings and the curses, what would happen through obedience, the rewards that would be received, as well as the penalties that would come for disobedience by not meeting the conditions of this treaty. Then there may be some witnesses that are stated showing they have seen this treaty and know it is in place. And even a document provision where they would write of how both sides would formally document this treaty, but it would usually end then finally with an inauguration action or sign with some visible declaration 
to show that this treaty is in effect. Well, why do we spend time considering this history of the ancient world? It's because God himself followed this structure when he made treaties or covenants with mankind. And this morning, we're going to see this structure worked out in these verses as we read through them this morning. So with the suzerain vassal treaty in mind, let us read Genesis 17, verses 1 to 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and, and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, brothers and sisters, before we continue, let's again go before our Lord in prayer. Father, we have gathered together this morning Because we are spiritually hungry. Because our souls need to be fed by the truths that you reveal to us through your word. And so we pray that this will be a great banquet feast to where we will see and rejoice in Jesus Christ through these verses. So, Father, we pray you will keep any distractions far from us. That any concerns in the middle of a pandemic will flee out of our minds. And that we will eagerly focus on hearing from you as your word is preached. Father, I ask that as the one you have entrusted with this word, that you will use me then to speak to your people in the power of your Holy Spirit, that your word will not return void, and that I will not simply be before those for whom Christ has died, giving my own reflections on this chapter and in these verses, but that I will become the one through whom you speak. 
for the edification and encouragement of the saints, for the evangelization and salvation of the sinners who are present among us. We ask that you be with us this morning, Father, knowing that you are with us because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we pray all these things in his name this morning. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, what do we learn then from God's treaty or his covenant with Abraham? Well, the answer is found here through three speeches that God makes with Abraham. You may have noticed three times in these verses, God speaks to Abraham, or as he begins in this chapter, to Abram. So let's break this down into the three speeches then. The first speech we could call God's covenant renewal. God's covenant renewal, and it's found in verses 1 and 2. But the second speech is in verses 3 to 8, God's covenant relationship. God's covenant relationship. Finally, the third speech we read in verses 9 to 14, which is God's covenant requirement. So we begin with God's covenant renewal, then God's covenant relationship, and finally God's covenant requirement. Let's begin then with the first speech, looking at God's covenant renewal. Remember, here we are in the middle of the book of Genesis, and Genesis begins with God creating the world and everything in the world. And at the climax of his creation, he creates humanity to then rule and reign over this world in an act of worship and glorifying God and reflecting him in this world. But then humanity rebels against God as our first parents, Adam and Eve, sin. And this sin brings judgment against humanity as, as humans and this world are cursed. We are cursed with death and with the corruption that then is spreading throughout the world. But in the midst of God's curse of judgment, we also hear God's promise of hope. As he promises salvation from his judgment, even as sin continues to work itself out chapter after chapter, year after year, century after century among sinful humanity. And this spark of hope then is seen when God calls a man named Abram out from his country, from his people, from his family, and he calls him to go to the promised land that his descendants will inherit. This brings us then to Genesis chapter 15, where God's promises of descendants and land are then formalized in a covenant. And a covenant is a guaranteed commitment that is made by God to fulfill his promise of descendants who will inherit the land to Abram. But the key verse in chapter 15 is found there in verse 6, where we read of Abram's response to God's covenant. We read of Abram, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So Abraham believed God, and God's righteousness is given to him because Abram trusted in God's promises to him. But that brings us then to Genesis chapter 16. And Abram and his wife Sarai waiting 10 long years. 10 years of unfulfilled promises. And Abram and Sarai grow impatient, which leads their faith to fail. And Sarai gives Abram her Egyptian maidservant Sarai to marry as a concubine so that then she can have children, not according to God's promise, 
but according to their own efforts in the flesh. That's why chapter 16 then ends with a son being born to Abram, but not the chosen son, Ishmael. And Ishmael is born then when Abram is 86 years old. That we must keep in mind then as we come to the first verse of chapter 17. Because notice how old Abram is at the beginning of this chapter. When Abram was 99 years old. So as this chapter begins, another 13 years have passed. Don't miss that. Don't miss these gaps. 13 years longer and still nothing has changed. They haven't heard from God. There's been no changes and they're still waiting. What would you be thinking after another 13 years? Has God abandoned me? Will his promises ever come true? It's then after all these years then, the Lord once again appears to Abram. And the Lord appears to Abram in what we have seen before as a theophany, a physical appearance to Abram. And notice when he appears as a theophany, the word Lord there is in all capital letters, which means this is the covenant name of God. God has covenanted with Abram, and now he returns to renew this covenant. And as he does so, he begins with a declaration of who he is. He says, I am almighty God. Now, Almighty God here is a translation of Hebrew words you may already be familiar with, El Shaddai. El Shaddai. And while we really don't know exactly what El Shaddai means, the meaning of this name, it likely means that God is powerful in fulfilling his covenant promises, especially in providing descendants to Abram, even while his wife remains barren. So here we find God's name likely meaning to Abram, I will fulfill my promises to you. And I want you to notice something as we continue focusing on these verses. Don't miss how Abram here is following after Adam in the garden and following after Noah with the flood, because there'll be many parallels and connections that we need to recognize. We first see this when God, after declaring who he is, commands Abram of how he is to live. Two commands are issued when he says, walk before me, and be blameless. Does any of this language sound familiar to you? Back earlier in the book of Genesis, how was Noah described? In Genesis 6-9. In that verse we read, Noah was a just man, perfect or blameless in his generations. Noah walked with God. And now how is Abram called to live here? To walk before God and be blameless. So like Noah, Abram is to be blameless and walk in submission to God, his sovereign Lord, in total obedience. So as we compare then Genesis 15, where God confirms his covenant with Abram, to Genesis 17, where God renews his covenant with Abram, you may notice a difference. In, Gen in chapter 15, believing God's promises was counted as righteousness, as we just read. But here in chapter 17, 
Being righteous is the condition for the fulfillment of God's promises. So there is this commitment, this covenant commitment that is now called on Abram to make to God. And as we go then to verse 2, God upholds this covenant with Abram. This, again, is not a new covenant. You can go all the way back to the covenant previously promised back in Genesis chapter 12 and then continues and is confirmed in Genesis chapter 15. So God reminds Abram of the same promise he gave back in 12 verse 2, I will make you a great nation. Or in chapter 15, verse 5, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you were able to number them, so shall your descendants be. And he says then to Abram here, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. But again, compare Abram to Adam and Noah. What did God say to Adam? Be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1.28. What did God say to Noah? Be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 9.1 and 7. Now what does God say to Abram? I will multiply you exceedingly. That's why Sidney Gradanus comments on this verse. Abram is another Adam. Another Noah, with whom God makes a new beginning to establish his kingdom on earth. But whereas Adam and Noah were simply commanded be fruitful, God makes Abraham a promise. I shall make you fruitful. Do you see then how gracious and loving God is? Thirteen years ago. Abram and his wife Sarai failed in their faith and took it upon themselves to carry out God's plan. Does God give up on them? Does God give up on the failures and sins of his people? No. No. After Abram's unfaithfulness, we find God remaining faithful. And so here we're given a window into God's heart and how reliable God is to us, even as we are unreliable in our sin. What a great God we serve. And how worthy he is of our worship. So, God begins here in this first speech with covenant renewal. But then we see Abram's response, don't we, in verse 3. And this leads us to the second speech of God in verses 3 to 8, God's covenant relationship. How does Abram respond? Then Abram fell on his face. After hearing from God, Abram falls to his face as a servant bows before his king. Because God here is the suzerain, and Abram is the vassal. And so he humbles himself before his covenant Lord. Which is why then God continues speaking. And because of God's promise to make Abram the father of many nations, what does he do next? In verse 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Abram meant exalted father, but now Abraham means father of a multitude. So you see, before his name was expressing his dignity under God. But now his name is enlarged to include the many descendants God promises him, even while he and his wife cannot have children. And what else do we see? 
that not only will a multitude of nations come from Abraham, but so shall kings be made exceedingly fruitful in verse 6. And I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. This is God's promise to Abraham then. And it's not only made with Abraham. He goes on to say this is also for your descendants who follow you. Which is why he calls it then an everlasting covenant in verse 7. It's an everlasting covenant. Just as God's covenant was with Noah. The same words were used there as well in Genesis 9 verse 16. When God raised a bow or a rainbow in the sky. God says, the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every creature living of all flesh on the earth. Again, it is the everlasting covenant that Noah expresses there to God. Here as well, we have an everlasting covenant because God himself is faithful and he does not change. But as we consider this covenant, don't miss the heart of God's covenant with Abram and his descendants. It's there at the end of verse 7. This everlasting covenant is a relationship. God commits or promises to be God to you and to your descendants after you. He's saying, I will be your God. And you will be my people. Fundamental then to God's covenant is a personal relationship with them. And it's out of this personal relationship with them that God's chosen people will then receive the promised land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Meaning that this land will continue to be passed on through Abraham's descendants generation after generation. But as we're looking at this covenant, do you see how God expands on the previous promises that he has made to Abraham? Here, Abraham's descendants will be multiplied into nations and will live in the promised land of Canaan where they will live under the rule of kings. And God, again, emphasizes his covenantal relationship with Abram's descendants who will then live in a kingdom. And of course, this then is the kingdom that will come the kingdom of Israel. Which also then anticipates the kingdom of Israel being ruled under a Davidic dynasty of kings. As Abram's, Abraham's descendants live in this land. So here in these verses... We see God's guarantee to protect Abraham's descendants and to provide them with life and prosperity in the land that he will give them. Do you see then how our God is not a distant or an impersonal God? But our God is a close and a loving God. I like how our Church's Confession of Faith, the Second London Confession, the 1689 Confession of Faith, summarizes this truth of how God personally relates to us. In chapter 7, the first paragraph, the confession summarizes biblical truth as it says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, Yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. God voluntarily 
condescends. He does not have to relate to us this way. He did not have to relate to Abraham or Abraham's descendants this way. He freely chose to in love as he condescends to enter into this covenant relationship with his chosen people. So is this God your God? Or do you remain separated from this God in your sin? Because he promises us salvation. Salvation from the judgment of God we deserve in our sin. And this promise of salvation is seen through the covenant that God here makes with Abraham. But that brings us then to the third speech here in these verses. We again began with God's covenant renewal, verses 1 to 2. Then in the second speech, we read of God's covenant relationship in verses 3 to 8. But finally, we come to the third speech in verses 9 to 14, God's covenant requirement. God speaks to Abraham a third time, and what do we see in verse 9? And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. Do you notice then this contrast? Look back at verse 4. What does God say? As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. Now verse 9, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. So not only does God promise blessings on his side of the covenant, but Abraham and his descendants must also keep their side of the covenant. And now we find another connection between Abraham and Adam in the Garden of Eden. Maybe you picked up on it. A word used both in verse 9 and in verse 10. You shall keep my covenant. If you go back to Genesis 2, verse 15, this word is also used with Adam. We read, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. You see then, as Adam was required to obey and keep God's covenant in the garden, so now Abraham and his descendants are required to keep God's covenant in the promised land. And how? Will Abraham and his descendants keep this covenant with God? How will they enjoy the promises that he has made with them to be his people in the promised land? Through circumcision. Again, verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. So all of the male children, the foreskin, would be cut off on the eighth day as a sign that they have been set apart to God. And they are then in covenant with God. This ritual is performed on the part of a man's body through which children are born. Why? To remind Abraham's descendants of God's promises continuing generation after generation as they commit themselves to him. And as God's people are set apart to carry out his plan for this world. So circumcision marks out Abraham's descendants as God's own people and separates them from the peoples around them because they were distinct and different. They were those chosen to be in a covenant relationship with God. But there's a key difference between this covenant sign and the covenant sign that God made with Noah. Who carried out the covenant sign to Noah? 
God himself. But unlike God's covenant sign with Noah of a rainbow, this covenant sign of circumcision, how is it to be performed? By human hands. By human hands. Showing they commit to following the God of their covenant. Do you see then how this circumcision is also a visible reminder of their need for a greater circumcision, a circumcision of the heart, to where they must remove the sin of their hearts like the skin that has been removed from their bodies. That's why we go on to read of Abraham's descendants, Israel, as they are about to enter and receive and inherit this promised land. In Deuteronomy 10, verses 15 and 16, The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So the circumcision they receive is also a visible reminder of a need for a greater circumcision. It comes through faith and trust in God and in God's promise to his people. So all male children who are eight days old, notice whether they are birth children or not. Whether they are Servants purchased with money or children of Abram's bloodline. They are all to be circumcised. That's what we read in verses 12 to 13. So even here as this covenant is being established by God, there's the inclusion of Gentiles. That membership in this covenant is not only through the bloodline of Abraham, but it also includes Gentiles who are a part of Abraham's household. Because God chose Abraham to bless the nations of the world and through which the nations of the world would be blessed. This brings us then to the final verse, verse 14, which is a word of warning. God says to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants, And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So here's a warning given to God's people who are not circumcised. If you will not be cut, then you will be cut off. Remember, a covenant includes a sanction or a threat to guarantee its fulfillment. And what was the covenant sign God made with Abram back in Genesis 15? God himself made an oath. By smoke and fire passing through animals that had been cut in half. Saying, God calling a curse upon himself. If this covenant failed to be fulfilled. But here we read of another cutting. That if Abraham or his descendants do not obey God. Then they too will be cut off from God's people just like their flesh has been cut off in the circumcision. So Abraham's descendants can forfeit God's promised blessings through their disobedience, including the very refusal to take upon themselves God's covenant sign of circumcision, either they personally or their children. So either they will obey God's law and the things will go well for them in the land, where they will disobey God's law and will be exiled from the land under the judgment of God. Circumcision then was both a promise of blessing as well as a threat of curses. 
blessings would come through their obedience to God. But curses would come through their disobedience to God. And what do we learn about Israel throughout the Old Testament? Like Adam, Israel is called a son of God, who then God puts in a new paradise of the promised land with a new manifestation of God's presence among them in the temple. And like Adam, they were disobedient to God. And they broke his covenant and they were expelled from the land. Where they dwelled with God. See, while Abraham's descendants failed to keep God's covenant with them, God reveals through them how his promise of salvation will be fulfilled by a faithful descendant of Abraham. I appreciate how Sam Renahan, in his recent book, uh, the mystery of Christ summarizes this. Renahan says, God promised Abraham that he would multiply his descendants into nations with kings that would dwell in Canaan after a time of slavery, and that from these numerous descendants an offspring would be born who would mediate blessing to the world. As for Abraham and his descendants, they must keep God's commands, particularly circumcision, or else they forfeit participation in the promised blessings. He goes on to write, God fulfilled his promises corporately and nationally to Israel, though individuals cut themselves off from the covenant through unfaithfulness. The Bible itself declares that God discharged his duties and fulfilled his obligations completely. And by the way, as a side note, if you have not yet picked up a copy of this book, The Mystery of Christ, I'd encourage you to do so. It helps show us the unfolding of the mystery of Christ through the covenants of Scripture, including the Abrahamic covenants. And we have some available if you're interested in the back, but a very helpful resource. What we find, though, here, as we return to the question we began with, is I think we're ready to answer the question, what do we learn from God's covenant with Abraham? What do we learn with God's covenant with Abraham? And here's the answer. God's people must keep God's covenant to receive God's blessings. God's people must keep God's covenant to receive God's blessings. And while Israel failed to keep God's covenants, God himself becomes a descendant of Abraham so that he would succeed. And he would be the one to keep God's covenant and receive God's blessings for his people. God himself becomes man in the person of Jesus Christ to take our place. Living a life walking before God and blameless. And at the end of his life, then voluntarily being nailed to the cross to take the very punishment and curse of sin we all deserve as he sheds his blood for us. He then is the one through which God's promise of salvation comes. He is the one to whom we look to having fulfilled the promises God gave to his people throughout the Old Testament. He is the one through whom we receive salvation by faith. So believe in Christ as Abraham believed and receive Christ's righteousness as your own. 
come to Christ by faith and confess your sins to him where you will be forgiven and reconciled and receive eternal life to enjoy in God's presence. Brothers and sisters, God's covenant with Abraham points us to a greater covenant that came in Christ, the new covenant. So I want us to rejoice this morning in this new covenant of grace. Let's, let's read more of this new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8. If you will, turn with me to Hebrews 8. And together we'll read verses 7 to 13, where Jesus Christ establishes this new, this new covenant of salvation for all those who believe in him and trust in what he has done for us. And here in the book of Hebrews, we read of the fulfillment of the new covenant that the prophet Jeremiah proclaimed back in the Old Testament. But let's read it together. Hebrews 8, verses 7 to 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And listen to those key words. I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none of them his brother saying, Know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Brothers and sisters, we have a greater covenant. Than the covenant God made with Abraham. It is the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And it is in the new covenant that the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. Because through Abraham's descendants, a king has come to establish his kingdom to bless the nations. And he too gives us a promised land in heaven where we will dwell once more in God's presence forever. Where Adam failed, where Noah failed, where even Abraham and his descendants failed, Christ succeeded. And Abraham is with Christ now in heaven. Not because he is the one, who fulfilled his covenant, the covenant promises. But because God was faithful and Abraham looked to God and believed in God who will keep his promises. May we too then have this faith of Abraham because God's promise of kings over the nations is fulfilled in Jesus Christ who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and who reigns over the kingdom of heaven as he invites us all in to enter, to receive the blessings we are given by faith. Because Christ is the one who has kept God's covenant, that we, united to him by faith, will receive God's blessings. May we then look to Christ and look to Christ alone. Even through 
the uncertainties of this world, even as we wait year after year after year after year after year after year for God's blessings to come. God is faithful. His promises are sure. Believe in God. And believe in the one who God sent in love, his son, Jesus Christ through which we are saved and will inherit God's blessings. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you will be at work among us this morning. we will see the glory and the beauty of Christ through your covenant with Abraham. May we not be like those who are unfaithful, who seek to live in our own strength and according to our own will, but as those who are looking to Christ and depending upon him, knowing that he will give us the strength to live in this world as we anxiously wait for the curses that have come into this world through sin of death and corruption to finally and fully be removed when Jesus returns. Father, we ask all these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ.